Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the Worklife Podcast. These are your hosts, Zoltan and Agnes. And this is a special edition as we are celebrating the 50th episode. Yes, you heard it right, the 50th episode of the Worklife Podcast. So we thought we would um, share some of our highlights and our favorite moments from these past two years that we've been recording the Worklife Podcast. Let's just go back in time. Two years ago, where were we? In New York. In New York. Our first episode was recorded in New York at the Work and Family Researchers Network conference exactly two years ago in 2014, June. And the first guest was Scott Beeson. Scott Beeson. And the, the reason why we are bringing this to you because we wanted to share some of the, the best moments and the, 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 the motives behind the Worklife podcast. As many of you know, and if you visit the services page of our website, you will figure out that besides research consultancy and content creation, we do a lot of communication. But what was the reason, what was the main reason making the Worklife podcast as a part of our brand and part of our activities? I think it was because we both really enjoyed listening to podcasts. Yeah, that's true podcast is cool and we thought that there wasn't a lot out there that was particularly targeting work-life issues that's true as well and also in addition as you just said to our consultancy and our research work we we really want to raise awareness about these issues and bring the latest research findings and books and thought leaders to as many people as possible yeah. around the world yeah and we also attend many meetings we travel a lot and we meet plenty of insiders thought leaders and authors and, and researchers so we wanted to bring those people to a wider audience and and join them together under the umbrella of work-life related issues yes and, and in addition to just finding some of the the biggest names out there, so to speak. Yes. Um, we also have different kinds of episodes, right? Yes, we have different kinds of episodes. Some of them are connected to the event where we work as uh, media partners or where we speak or we are invited to be a speakers. So we promote in some of our episodes uh, those events and those conferences. And then we had some episodes where we really connected to policymakers. Yes. Policy, but also more policy-informing researchers. Yes. That's a better way to say. Yes. For example, you may have heard of the OECD, Eurofound, or the ILO. Our plan is to, to invite as many researchers and policymakers as well, and at the same time, open the podcast channels, the door of the Worklife work podcast to our listeners as well. We have a fantastic example, Victor Yoko, who, who wrote us an email and basically he suggested himself to be one of our future guests. So we invited him and he was a fantastic speaker. 
Yeah, and he brought a totally new perspective exactly. to the podcast, something that we haven't thought about before. Yeah. So what was your favorite besides Victor? I think it would be difficult to say one favorite because I have many favorites and and every conversation is unique. Every guest is unique. Um, but I think if you listen to the podcasts, probably the listeners are also able to tell. And um, I think Bridget Schulte was one where it didn't even feel like a podcast recording. Mm. It, it felt like speaking to an old friend. And that was great. I think we you can hear that we actually had a lot of fun doing the podcast. Yeah, podcasting is fun. And it's about having normal conversations with someone or with two guests. We have reached a milestone uh, in our 49th episode, which we hosted two guests at the same time. So we're trying to break the mold and uh, find our barriers or break our barriers by inviting new people, inviting uh, guests from a different background compared to our previous guests or invitees and also touching on different areas, um, different topics as well. Yes, and also we have, in 2016, we have really amped up our game when we started producing one episode a week. Yes. So that's what is our promise to our listeners, to keep doing that. So we have a great pipeline lined up. Who will be in a podcast show in the near future, Agi? I'm really excited. We have great episodes lined up for our listeners. We're going to be speaking to Sarah Jackson, who is the chief executive of Working Families in the UK. Um, another great episode with Professor Isa Getz on Freedom Inc., Liberated Companies. Great. Cassie D. Solis from SHRM uh, and When Work Works, whom we also met two years mm -hmm. ago in New York. It was great to reconnect with her. Yes. Aviva Wittenberg-Cox about having gender parity and, and um, full uh, equity in companies. Mm -hmm. So we're always on the lookout to bring you great guests. And if you know of someone or if you have an idea, then just write to us, get in touch by email at info at worklifehub.com, Twitter at worklifehub, Facebook, any social media you want, and we will invite them. So Zoli... Who would be your dream guest? My dream guest would be Natalie James from Australia, who is actually the Fair Work Ombudsman. And she has an excellent insight on gender equality. Uh, and especially as we have not too many guests from that part of the world, it would be great to have her and have her inside on what's going on in Australia on gender and work-related questions, as we often deal with uh, such issues also in our work and also in our podcast episodes. But we also would like to discover more areas and more countries in terms of speaking of uh, geography and have more guests from South America and also from Africa. Speaking of dream guests, who would be your dream guest? Um, I think my dream guest would probably be Michelle Obama. Michelle. <laughs> so, Michelle, if you hear this, please come and be a guest on our podcast. <laughs> yes, Michelle, please email us on info at worklifehub.com. And now coming to the 50th episode. Yeah, let's celebrate. Let's listen to the 50th episode. 
in which we host Ken Matos of Life Meets Work, who is a VP for research. And he's going to share more about flexible work, especially in the US perspective. Yes, and he has got a lot of insight on what is actually happening in US companies, you know, compared to maybe what is in the media about freelancing yes. and contingent and leaves. And so it's a very insightful conversation. Okay, let's go to the show now. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Podcast. This is your host, Agnes, and today I have the absolute privilege to be joined by Dr. Kenneth Matos. Hi, Ken. Hi. So we've had a couple of um, exchanges before this podcast. So uh, for listeners, I think it will be quite interesting to jump in into our conversation about work life in general. Dr. Matos is a researcher. He's covering a wide range of workforce and workplace issues, including diversity, work-life balance, work-life fit, flexible work, and workplace effectiveness. He's a regular contributor to the Huffington Post and a commentator speaker. And we will be uh, speaking about uh, the different trends and perhaps some of the myths that exist around the U.S. Uh, workforce today. So thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So would you mind, Ken, telling listeners a little bit about um, your work and your career and, and your passion and how you got into the field of the research that you're doing? Sure. It's actually a very circuitous route. I started as an organizational psychologist looking into issues of leadership and diversity um, and spent some time at the Department of Defense. I headed up some research on issues of racial and ethnic harassment and discrimination and helped out with some work on lives for military spouses and what it was like to be a reservist who had a very interesting job set up where you were working a civilian job but also had a military career and uh, often a family as well and how people managed to make all of that work together. Uh, from there I went to the Families and Work Institute where I headed up some, um, national studies, um, the National Study of the Changing Workforce looking at the experience of employees and the National Study of Employers looking at issues of uh, employer policy around supporting uh, employees and uh, business functions. Thank you very much for sharing this. And so already bouncing off of uh, that, so you worked on these annual studies for employers over time. Um, in your um, observation, in your work, wh what were maybe the most important trends that you observed in this work? So during the time that I was working on the National Study of Employers, uh, I found a couple of trends that, that popped up. We were looking primarily at data between 2005 and 2016. And in that time, we found that during the recession, there was a lot of volatility. We saw employers changing up their policies quite a bit, uh, generally along two uh, seemingly contradictory lines. Uh, the first was an increase in support for day-to-day -day flexibility. So employers were more engaged with having employees adjust their schedules on a daily basis or um, working from home uh, on an occasional basis. 
they were less engaged with opportunities to take extended periods of time away from work. So things like sabbaticals and uh, leaves and being able to swap between full and part time were things that employers seem to be less invested in. Uh, my guess is that this is because during the recession, a lot of employers were trying to accomplish more with less. They had fewer people on staff. And so they were more willing to engage with opportunities for people to fit more into their lives, to be able to work later if it meant that they had some family time in the middle of the day. Um, but they were able to get a few people to do a lot of work in a way that didn't burn them out. On the other hand, uh, when you have such a few, small group of people, it's a lot harder to say, all right, you can only work part-time or you can go take an extensive leave because I, I can't afford to have any real backup. So running lean, I think, is an interesting conundrum in that it probably prompts more day-to-day -day flexibility, but makes it much harder to do anything that might take you away for a while. Uh, in the case of things like elder care, um, where it often can be extended times away, but it really is unpredictable as to when you might need it, uh, that could be a real uh, complication. So uh, that was one of the sort of big trends that we saw. Um, the second one is that post the recession, we seem to come to something of a status quo uh, and that the research seems to show that you know, once the recession was over, a lot of employers sort of found what seems to have been a, a good place for them. and the numbers haven't really moved very much since then. So it seems that we're kind of in a lull. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a sort of calm before a next storm of change. There's a lot going on in terms of at least American politics around work life, as well as um, just a, a bigger cultural push to explore the question of how you do work in a ways that are both efficient, effective, and meaningful for people. And so this, we may be having a, another rush um, in the coming years, or we may find that it's just limited to a few industries that where employees have the social power to be able to push back and say, you know, we want to reinvent work. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for sharing this. Um, and, and this is also what is, you know, discussed as the new world of work or the, or the, the future of work with these major shifting tectonic plates uh, where I guess globally everybody is trying to find their footing. Now, I have seen just very recently an interesting um, data uh, analysis about, you know, that the, the jobs that were created since uh, the crisis were basically non-standard contracts or, or non-standard employment. Did you also see this, that is there really a, a such a change in, in going from full-time, um, uh, longer-term contracts to more uh, contract-based, project-based, or remote or, or gig type of work? There's definitely more interest in the idea of a gig economy. I, I don't know if it's generalized to all employees. Uh, I think one of the things that goes on is it makes a lot of sense for positions where you want creative work or you have project work and you don't necessarily know when the next uh, job's going to come in. And so being able to have a flexible staff is an advantage. That said, this isn't actually all that new. In a very strange way, we've had it for a while in manufacturing. 
so the word flexible, at least in U.S. manufacturing, doesn't necessarily mean work-life flexibility. It often means staffing flexibility. So being able to hire and fire or put people on leaves um, that are unpaid so that you can reduce and increase your staffing to match your business. So in a sense, the gig economy has been around for some time. It's simply managed to expand to people who never really imagined wanting to be in the gig economy. Um, from some of the work that I've seen, the interesting thing about the gig economy isn't the expansion of gig type jobs, it's whether or not it's expanding beyond the demand for gig type jobs. So people sort of think about their careers and whether or not they want to have a pretty steady job where things are a lot more predictable, or if they want some of the freedom and empowerment that comes from a contract position. And finding yourself in a contract job uh, when you really want something more stable can be difficult because you need additional skills uh, to be able to keep looking for jobs. You need to be able to find time to keep looking for jobs. You also need to really think about what kinds of relationships you're forming with your, your clients and dealing with different paperwork and tax issues. So I think, I think what's interesting about the gig economy is not that it's inherently problematic, but that a lot of people aren't prepared to function in a gig economy or are just not interested in that sort of dynamism in their employment. And uh, being able to match that demand for those kinds of jobs to employers' offerings of those kinds of jobs, I think is going to be important to really make the gig economy something that is empowering as opposed to uh, frustrating for a lot of people. Absolutely. You're making a very important point there. And uh, talking about some of these trends over the summer, there was uh, a big hype around uh, mainly two um, employers' uh, decisions around this. And one was the, the um, offers around uh, unlimited vacation and the other one around leaves, uh, maternity, paternity leaves, and mainly coming from the Silicon Valley. Um, did you see it? Did this have any spillover effect or, or is this very isolated to a specific industry and a specific region in the US? So uh, looking back at the 10 years of National State of Employers put out by the Families and Work Institute, uh, it's pretty clear that there actually hasn't been a lot of flux in parental leave. Um, there's the, the amount of time really has only varied by about a week. And so when you look at this to the sudden burst that's been talked about in the last year, it really seems to be a isolated uh, scenario. It's not something that is the norm for employers and uh, across the nation, but it was likely more restricted to employers that are really um, engaged in the next wave of the talent force. So the Silicon Valley high-tech companies have some interesting employee profiles where uh, they're Young, they tend to be younger, they tend to have um, fairly rare skills, and the battle over what company you're going to work at is pretty huge. Somebody has a great idea, that great idea can make you billions. Yeah. Um, and so I think that what we've seen is some major companies really dealing with a uh, need to have 
good parental leave policies for a select group of employees. And I think what we saw with Netflix in particular really kind of uh, brings that into full picture, where they only offered it to employees in one section of the organization, uh, mostly in the tech pieces, and not those working in the, fa in the shipping houses, sending out the different DVDs. And so while they eventually amended that and made it company-wide, I think it really shows the thinking overall And when you look at the country. People with these very specialized jobs where you really want to keep them long-term are going to get offered these kinds of supports, whereas those who are not in those types of positions may need to really struggle to make sure that this becomes more of a ethical issue for the culture and the government the government and the companies so that it isn't seen as reasonable to offer something so important for child development to some of your employees but not to others. Yes, I think that one of the issues is also that um, this, this global race for talent and the perks and work-life supports companies are going to then offer is going to even widen inequalities um, and inequalities uh, going into several generations because just as you say, uh, these new parents will be able to spend time with their children or probably, I assume, they also have uh, some form of support for childcare, um, whereas then the rest uh, do not benefit from such generous measures. Absolutely. Uh, when the perks are tied to offering really important developmental opportunities for children or individuals. You definitely create a scenario wherein some people will be able to spend a lot of energy prepping their kids for school or really forming good relationships. Um, another aspect is really being able to deal with issues of gender and how gender influences who does what in a family. If we have parental leave policies that favor women taking extended periods of time away from work, but really push men into only taking a little bit of time, we create a slippery slope where women are going to be the ones at the beginning of childcare where they have a lot of practical experience um, caring for the children. And so you, you end up in a scenario where it just seems to make sense to have her keep doing it. And suddenly she starts having issues with staying in the workplace. Meanwhile, he's uh, feeling like his role is to stay at work and not necessarily to be at home helping. And so we end up just creating more pressure on women to try to do it all in ways that without, without a lot of support from their partners. Um, and I think that's one of the many ways in which these sorts of policies create longer term situations that um, we don't intend um, and actually are contrary to a lot of our efforts but because we don't necessarily look at these things over a person's career lifetime, uh, we don't necessarily see those patterns as clearly as quickly. Absolutely, and, and especially because this is also quite new. Yes, I mean, a lot of this is very new uh, and uh, you, you can't really compare some of the older experiences to current experiences because the cultural reception of these programs are somewhat different. A woman taking maternity leave 20 years ago was simply seen as not committed. Um, it, 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 was, it didn't matter if she was planning on coming back or what her situation was going to be. 
it was just a reminder of all the weird gender rules that we'd impose on everyone. Now you may have more of a social acceptance of it, but the day-to-day -day acceptance and the ways in which it interacts with how you get assignments or have opportunities to work on things that are going to advance your career become more subtle things. And they're much harder to pick out because nobody intends any, any sort of disparities in uh, opportunity, but they emerge over time. And um, it's hard to take responsibility for fixing those when they were created so innocently. Yeah. And, and also, um, I, I, I've read a case study about a very interesting law firm. And, you know, the legal practice is one where uh, globally there's this culture of overwork and one legal firm introduced a policy where um, it almost obliged or wanted to um, wanted to really push employees or future partners, le uh, lawyers, to take one evening off per week. Um, and the employees, they, they felt that this was a trap. Mm. That they were being kind of put under a microscope. Okay, let's see who is the one that's going to go home on time and then almost label them you know that they are the not committed the non so uh, it's it's interesting to see these sporadic policies that have not been really embedded with a culture change or you know when we don't address the the the, the biases and and the stereotypes you know it, it, they, they seem to be just like pockets of of initiatives who could as you say also backfire Absolutely. Uh, interestingly, I know of a study done by Leslie Perlow out of Harvard Business School. Um, she put it in her book, Sleeping With Your Smartphone, where she did the same thing for a consulting company, and they took one night off a week and found that it was a huge benefit to the employees as well as to the clients because it prompted greater conversation and investment in planning, which meant that uh, client projects were done more smoothly and there were less emergencies and hiccups um, and when there were they already had a plan on how to deal with them so that they just worked in a way that was more conducive to themselves and their clients and so the company was very happy with it but it they were very clear that it had to start with managers and company support um, for both the program and for what it would mean for their billable hours, you really have to engage with that hard conversation about what, what is it that my manager is going to be evaluating. I think the consulting company experiment really worked because the person who was doing the evaluation was also part of the program. They also had that one night off a week and everyone was required to help each other take that time off. I think that made it a team culture issue, which allowed them to get past those fears. If you don't have that kind of setup and it's just, all right, you as an individual now need to take time off and it's not embedded in the larger uh, culture and conversation, people feel alone with, uh, these kinds of changes and feel like they're walking out on a plank and are hoping that someone will catch them when they jump off. And so that takes a lot of bravery. And I've met some really amazing people who've been able to do that, but it's, it's not for everyone to do that alone. No, absolutely. And um, especially just coming out of a crisis when the, the job security issue still lingers on, we get all kinds of news about, oh, is there another looming crisis just around the corner? 
I think people really need to hold on to their jobs if, if they have a good one. And in these times, putting in place such policies really need to come with, uh, as you said, a lot of conversation and a lot of comforting in the belief that this is now your right. You can have the right to ask. You have the right to do this. And we're going to all be doing this because this is just going to make sense for us and be better for us. Yeah, I think a lot of work needs to be done on the this makes sense piece. Um, while it's a benefit, it is a luxury. And, mm. uh, when, and luxuries come with this one problem. Um, when you're thinking about a person's commitment to, it, to something, one of the most powerful ways of demonstrating commitment is sacrifice. And so if you have a culture that really talks about how committed you are to serving the client or, or helping the company, and then you offer some uh, a benefit that's framed as a luxury or a perk or an option, um, the best way to show commitment is not to take it. And so you end up um, creating a trap. So you, you really need to have a framework for these policies that goes beyond, you know, this is nice to do. It really has to be things like um, at the consulting company where they said, our client satisfaction went up because you were working better. This is not just about, you know, being nice to you. This is also about people who can conserve their resources and manage their energy and connect to different parts of themselves and their lives have more to offer to our clients. Um, and so that makes it a good business decision for you to take care of yourself. If you can get that in there, uh, I think the culture is more likely to shift faster and people will push each other to say, you're not sleeping. That means you're not doing as good a job. Go get some sleep as opposed to, you know, find some time in a mystical world where the day is 38 hours long to go and sleep. <laughs> yes. And, and also this whole idea of, I mean, you have put this so brilliantly and, and I think you have, you, you have, you really put your finger on the pulse um, because we even, there's always this kind of a bit of a masquerade of, you know, emerging on a Monday and then all of a sudden, voila, the work is done. And oh, yeah, you have worked all weekend, but um, not, you know, as, so we get these totally unrealistic um, levels of, of performance with, with these high performers or, or, or people really driven and, and it's just not healthy. And I think that uh, in the discussion about advancing women and the, the, the discussions around the glass ceiling and trying to identify these bottlenecks. I think women now more and more voice, um, you know, the fact that they are not ready for the trade-offs that that or that role requires of them, maybe even implicitly and not explicitly. Yeah, I, I think we have an interesting gender thing that goes on where uh, women have to voice the problems with the system because they're the ones caught most visibly between two opposing forces. So on the one hand, they're expected to be good mothers and homemakers, and they will be judged if those ideals are not met. 
But on the other hand, as employees and workers, they're also expected to be able to comport with the ideal worker framework, which says that really someone else is taking care of home and children, and you're able to put in whatever the organization needs in order to advance. Men, on the other hand, get judged first and primarily by their ability to contribute funds to family, which is directly helped by being an ideal worker. And so men sit there more quietly and wonder how to have a more meaningful life because the only thing that they're really getting, uh, not praise, but criticism for is failing to produce money. Uh, a recent study talked about how when men and women work part-time and then look for a new job, women aren't penalized, but men are. The men are less likely to get the new job if they say they've been working part-time. Um, this yeah. was done by the University of Texas. And so what we end up having is this scenario where men are supposed to keep their mouths shut about what's going on. Um, another study saw men taking work life, but actively hiding it from their colleagues in order to maintain an impression. But because they're, nobody's looking for their family work. Because women are being looked at both as employees and as family maintainers, they have to present both sides of themselves to manage their, their cultural presence. And so I think that's the big reason why women have stepped out into the forefront and really engaged openly with this question because there's no room for them to do it quietly. Um, and the next real stage is to open up that conversation amongst men so that this becomes a conversation amongst employees, employers, people, and families, and not this messy gender identification game that really pits men and women against each other. Absolutely. And also it doesn't help because it labels, you know, these, these uh, issues as mommy issues and mm -hmm. even further convinces companies to not boost the number of women they hire because oh not only you know will they uh, go off and maybe have children but then they will also come and ask me for these leaves or flexible work so maybe they even feel more under pressure to it's 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 almost um seems to be a, a catch-22 and and uh, what do you think Ken? what is going to kind of uh be a tipping point or be some event or some kind of change in mentalities that may, um, you know, make these uh, work-life supports and initiatives more widespread and more accessible to everyone? I think we're actually having a, a piece of that. Uh, I think one thing that has sort of disrupted the change is, um, is the uh, extension of life, actually. So we had a huge medical uh, boom um, in time for the boomer generation, where their lifespans and their working lifespans were made much longer. Um, and so, and then combine that with the recession um, damaging a lot of retirement accounts, a lot of people have had to stay in the workforce much longer, often at the more senior positions that they've earned over their lifetime. And so that, that then created a lot of this generational clash that we're talking about now as Gen X, the millennials, and in a few years, Generation Z come in with a very different perspective of how work can be done and how to make certain priorities come together, 
Um, they're very different in terms of how they think about and talk about diversity, um, gender and otherwise. And so we've had a sort of a slowdown in that cultural change because we've ha we have all these generations in the workplace, but they're not all equal in terms of authority to control and direct culture. But the millennial number grows and the boomer number shrinks. And so we've seen this generational war. So I think we're, we're definitely heading to a piece of that just inevitably through um, retirements and promotions. Uh, I, I also think that in the American context, there's a growing sense that certain amount kinds of uh, benefits should not be benefits, they should be standards. Um, and so I think as more municipalities pass laws, we get more data that shows that when pushed to it, organizations can often figure out a way to make it work. Um, and hopefully more of them will step up and figure out these opportunities before laws are passed. But I think that that's another sort of potential tipping point that can make these work-life programs more normal. Uh, I think the other thing that we need to work on actively, because I don't think it's going to happen naturally, is really transforming the way we address some of the gender issues, uh, primarily thinking about men as the point of intervention. Uh, I feel as though we've spent a lot of time trying to fix women, and women haven't done anything wrong. They, they, are, they don't need to be Thank fixed. Thank <laughs> The problem, a lot of the problem lies in constructions of masculinity, um, the gender norms that are expected of men and how they are often inherently in opposition to the things that we expect of women. And while women have become able to integrate a more complex gender identity with work and home, men are so restricted that they end up pulling women back in order to remain men in the traditional sense. And so the more we can start breaking down and addressing issues of masculinity in the workplace and what it means to be a man, the more we can remove these gravitational poles that we end up um, in, uh, enforcing on women as a result. And so I think that is a place where we, that is necessary for us to move past these are mommy issues to really, these are family issues and these are societal issues and these are employer issues. Um, and talk about it coherently rather than breaking us into two gender camps and um, fighting it out. Absolutely. And also to, as you said, have those kind of um, studies and, and, and to observe in those uh, states when some of this legislation is introduced to show that this, is not me this doesn't mean the end of business as we know it. Yeah. And even if it did, business might be better for, uh, for it. Absolutely. Now, before we come to our last question, because time is unfortunately not on our side here, um, would you mind uh, reminding listeners where they could maybe reach out to you? Absolutely. So um, you can reach me by email at kmatos at lifemeetswork.com. So kmatos at lifemeetswork.com or on Twitter at Dr. Ken Matos. Um, and I look forward to hearing from anybody who's interested in talking about these issues more or exploring research possibilities. Great. So our last question, which is always the same on the Work Life podcast. Um, if I could ask you, Ken, 
to give one advice to a CEO to start down the path of offering much better um, working conditions for his or her employees in terms of well-being, in terms of work-life support, whatever it is, what would be your first or one advice? So um, I think my the first thing that pops into my mind is a two-step uh, piece of advice. The first is to look at your own life and the path that you followed um, in order to become a CEO and what were the work-life opportunities and trade-offs that you made. Um, the second piece of it is to then uh, dismantle that in terms of thinking about what were the privileges that you had? Did you have a stay-at-home spouse that made it possible for you to work late but know your kids were okay? How quickly did you get to a salary where you could start outsourcing things? Are people in your company able to do that as easily? How has the opportunities to do that outsourcing, have the costs gone up since the time you did it? And, and really look at not just your life and say, oh, my life works, but how could your life work if you had a different set of opportunities, the ones that are common to the employees under your care? Um, and I think that really opens your eyes to the fact that what seems perfectly reasonable and doable to you as a CEO, um, a person with privilege, uh, finances, and the authority to make things happen, and compare that to people who don't necessarily have the same privileges for whatever uh, demographic groups they might belong to, uh, or the how much you're paying them, or the way the environment and the or and the country has changed to make certain things available or not available that uh, were different for you. I think at that point it starts becoming clear as to why these things have meaning and value. Um, without that, it's a lot harder to really identify with those programs and see how they're going to make things better for not just your employees, but for you and for your company. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it has been such a pleasure and a privilege to be uh, exchanging with you on these topics for the past half hour. So thanks again, Ken, for taking the time and, and coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again.